Good morning. As I think all of you know, I'm Clark Irvin, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this morning's speaker series. And I'm very, very pleased to introduce this morning's speaker, Dr. Rebecca Carter-Chand. Dr. Carter-Chand is the director of the programs on ethics, religion, and the Holocaust at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum here in Washington. The mission of the program is to foster scholarship, teaching, and reflection on the role of religion during the Holocaust and the ways in which religious communities have addressed these legacies since 1945. Her research in particular focuses on Christian minority groups in Nazi Germany, including the Salvation Army, Seventh-day Adventists, and Jehovah's Witnesses. A new book that she has co-edited, and we were just talking about that, is called Religion, Ethno-Nationalism, and Anti-Semitism in the Era of the Two World Wars will be released soon for publication. She holds a BA degree in history from Crandall University in her native Canada, an MA degree in history from Queen's University in Canada, and a PhD in history and Jewish studies from the University of Toronto. She's joined by her husband, Dennis, and they tell me that they're very active parishioners at St. Mary's in Arlington. And with that, please join me welcoming Dr. Rebecca Carter-Chant. Hello, thank you. Uh, for inviting me to speak with you today. It's a real honor and a treat to be here. And I, I was just saying, we've been doing a lot of programming online, but very few opportunities to, to do things in person. So this is really nice to get back uh, and be here. Um, let me just check the time. I'm hoping that I will stick to the 30 minutes. But I, I'd like to speak to you a little bit about the, my role at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum and then talk about um, some of the history that we use a lot in our programming, and that is looking at the German churches in the Nazi period, um, which I think will be of interest to all of you who are part of this um, Christian community here in Washington, D.C. Uh, you are probably all familiar with the museums down on the mall, um, but just a bit about the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, which is a federally charted, uh, chartered museum, not part of the Smithsonian, um, but it's a federally chartered and uh, museum and educational institution that serves as a living memorial to the Holocaust and works globally to address Holocaust awareness, deepen the understanding of the lessons of the Holocaust, address Holocaust denial, and advance genocide prevention. Uh, a unanimous act of Congress in 1980 committed to creating a national memorial um, on designated federal land uh, on the National Mall. And so they broke ground in 1985 and opened to the public in 1993. And since then, we, we have grown. And so it's a, a public-private uh, public partnership. Before the pandemic, the museum welcomed 1.6 million visitors each year from around the world. And so, um, as you just said, the, the, uh, I work in a particular office called the Programs on Ethics, Religion, and the Holocaust. And I think the Holocaust raises profound ethical, theological, and historical questions about the role of religious institutions, religious leaders, and individuals during this watershed event especially for people of faith. And so since its founding, the museum has engaged religious communities and placed an emphasis on working with Christian churches and Christian communities who are seeking to come to terms with the role of the Christian churches in the Holocaust. 
So the programs on ethics, religion, and the Holocaust is really the museum's central hub for the study of religion uh, and education around these topics. And it's housed within the museum's research uh, center. So uh, um, as Clark said, we, we seek to promote new research. Um, we integrate Holocaust studies into seminary and religious studies curricula and the study of religion into um, all areas of Holocaust studies. And we also foster learning and reflection on the Holocaust and its ethical implications, um, both for religious uh, audiences and the wider public as well. And so to give you a sense of what that actually looks like in concrete terms, I have a few examples. So the first, scholarship. Um, just last week, we ran a research workshop, which was co-organized by the Center for Christian Jewish Learning at Boston College and Yad Vashem in Israel. Uh, and this workshop was on Catholic archives and Holocaust memory and focused on the newly opened Vatican archives for the pontificate of Pius XII, who was pope from 1939 to 1958. And these archives just opened to researchers in March of 2020. The archives encompass approximately 16 million documents in six major archives and dozens of smaller archives all around Vatican City and Rome. And so the USHMM has uh, undertaken a major initiative to create greater access to these documents to researchers by acquiring scans of relevant materials and also supporting these researchers through convening um, scholarly workshops and conferences. But we also want to engage public audiences about these new questions that the researchers are um, asking and their new frameworks and, of course, their new findings in the archives. And this work is expected to provide answers and contribute nuance that, um, that researchers and Holocaust survivors and the public have long sought. This long-standing debate um, and controversy about Pope Pius XII concerns both historical facts and larger moral questions about the failure of church institutions and leaders to publicly condemn the genocide of European Jews. And so we want to learn what the Pope knew, when he knew it, and to what extent senior church officials discussed options to help Jews. We also hope to expand our understanding of the role of local bishops, priests, nuns, and ordinary Catholics all throughout Europe. So that's just one example of the way that we are um, fostering new research. On the second area, the, the teaching, we, we, uh, we work a lot with faculty um, who touch on religion and the Holocaust from many different disciplines. One of our core programs is an annual seminar uh, for university faculty and, and some clergy. The topics change from year to year. We've held seminars on Muslims and the Holocaust, um, Martin, Luther, uh, Martin Luther's theology and Jews, and building Christian Jewish understanding after the Holocaust. The last summer uh, seminar, which we held virtually, uh, of course, because of COVID, um, was called the Holocaust and the Christian Tradition, and it examined the historical, ethical, and theological relevance of the Holocaust for Christianity and theological education today. And so we looked at topics like the ethics of rescue, the role of clergy and religious professionals, and post-Holocaust reckonings with theology. The third area of our work is more public-facing. We engage clergy and religious leaders, those working in faith-based policy or advocacy organizations, 
and those engaged in ecumenical and interreligious work. Because the Holocaust unfolded across European societies deeply influenced for centuries by Christianity, Judaism, and other religious traditions, you know, the, the consideration of religion is really crucial to understanding um, how and why the Holocaust happened and how people responded to events around them. So a big part of our work is religious literacy. For example, many religious Jews who visit our museum find certain exhibition design choices especially meaningful, um, such as the display of desecrated Torah scrolls in the Kristallnacht section of the permanent exhibition. But for visitors with little knowledge of uh, Jewish tradition, these, the nuances of how they chose to uh, respectfully display these desecrated Torah scrolls um, might, might be lost on them. Moreover, you know, we, we, we believe that it's not only Lutherans who ought to learn about the legacy of Martin Luther or Catholics who ought to learn about the seismic shifts in Catholic teachings about Jews after the Holocaust. And it's not only Jehovah's Witnesses who ought to learn about their community's persecution uh, under the Nazis. And so two, just two weeks ago, we've been busy with programming, Two weeks ago, we partnered with the Washington National Cathedral to hold a webinar that explored the long and tangled history of anti-Semitism um, in European Christianity and its implications during the Holocaust. And the program was part of a larger set of events to dedicate the cathedral's new stone carving of Elie Wiesel, a Holocaust survivor and Nobel laureate. And if you have a chance to go up to the cathedral sometime, you can see this new carving of Elie Wiesel in the human rights porch. It's really quite remarkable. So that's a brief overview of what we do, and I'd like to delve into a bit more of the history um, to give you a taste of uh, the sorts of questions and uh, uh, stories that we tell audiences and to help people um, begin to ask questions, sorry, uh, begin to ask questions for themselves uh, and to talk about these issues. And so, um, in the Christian tradition, I'm sure you're all aware, there's this concept of sins of commission and sins of omission, right? Doing things that are wrong and failing to do the right things. And all too often in discussions about the Christian churches during the Holocaust, there's this emphasis on silence or what the church failed to do. In fact, there's a whole field of study about the so-called silence of Pope Pius XII, why did he not speak out and condemn the persecution and mass murder of Jews? Why did he not speak out to encourage Catholics to resist? On the Protestant side, there are also questions of silence. We can look to some of the earliest statements uh, from the German Protestant church made right after the war in 1945, like the Stuttgart Declaration of Guilt, in which they say, we accuse ourselves for not standing to our beliefs more courageously for not praying more faithfully, for not believing more joyously, and for not loving more ardently. Um, that's just one, one part of the, the larger um, declaration, but it was really seen as inadequate by the international Christian community, um, who pointed out that it only addressed sins of omission and not commission. And so even though there's been a lot of research published about the churches in Nazi Germany that focuses on what they did do, clergy and laity, leadership, local parishes, ecumenical bodies, religious professionals, the churches are still often spoken about in the passive voice, 
using this concept of bystanders, like they were just on the sidelines, watching what was happening around them and failing to act. And this is simply not accurate, um, as I'd like to explain in the next few minutes. And I'll start with a story about Pastor Martin Niemöller, who was a leading Protestant pastor and became an outspoken opponent of Hitler and was a leader in the Confessing Church and spent the last seven years of Nazi rule in concentration camps. He's most famous for his post-war confession. First they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. You might be familiar with this or other versions. Um, there are many different uh, slight iterations of this uh, famous confession. But these words actually end the permanent exhibition uh, at, our, at the USHMM. They're on the wall as visitors uh, leave. And they challenge us all to confront our inaction vis-a-vis -vis others. But many people are surprised to learn that Niemöller was an ardent German nationalist he harbored typical um, anti-Jewish stereotypes of his day, and he even voted for the Nazi party in 1924 and again in 1933. His, po uh, his famous post-war confession grew out of a reckoning with this past. He told a German audience a few months after the end of the war, and I quote, my alibi accounted for the years 1937 to 1945, these were the years when he was imprisoned. Uh, quote, but, but God was not asking me where I had been from 1937 to 1945, but from 1933 to 1945. And for those earlier years, I did not have an answer. In other words, Niemöller did not remain silent about the arrest of socialists, trade unionists, and Jews because he was too timid to speak out. He was silent because he also disapproved of them. And it was only after the war that he went on a journey of transformation. So um, usually when I present this, I have some slides and I have some nice pie charts that um, show the, the demographic breakdown. But I can very quickly, easily tell you that the, the religious landscape in Germany was such that the vast majority of Germans belonged to a Christian church. They were um, baptized into the church, were members, re received religious education in school, um, and, and so on. Approximately two-thirds of Germany uh, was Protestant, one-third was Catholic, less than 1% was Jewish, and another 1% belonged to uh, a great number of other very small um, Christian denominations, um, Baptist, Mennonite, Methodist, Seventh-day Adventist, um, and the list goes on. Um, but, they, but they were very small in number. Um, now, this doesn't mean that everyone was in the pew on a Sunday morning, and some historians estimate that maybe 5%, uh, it was as low as 5% regular church attendance in urban areas. But still, the churches were pillars of German society, and they played a very important role in shaping people's attitudes and actions. Um, the Protestant church was made up of Lutheran and Reformed traditions, and it was a confederation of regional churches. The Catholic Church uh, had an especially strong presence in the West and the South part of Germany, uh, and there was a fairly recent memory, collective memory among German Catholics, 
of this co conflict between the government and Catholics in the late 19th century uh, called the Kulturkampf. That'll be important in a minute as I go on. Um, so, you know, what happened? How did the churches respond when the Nazis came to power? This is a big question. And in fact, most Christians, so most Germans, because that is basically the same thing, um, most Christians welcomed the rise of Hitler in 1933 for a mix of reasons. Certainly there was nationalism. Um, there was a, a backlash against the Weimar Republic, which was formed in Germany after World War I. Many Protestant leaders were, were very conservative and, and a little skeptical of parliamentary democracy, which was uh, a new form of government for Germany at that time. Anti-communism was, of course, a very important factor as well, and Hitler was seen as a bulwark against communism. There was also a traditional loyalty uh, to governing authorities, especially among Protestants, I'd say. There was also, uh, of course, a convergence of Nazi anti-Semitism with a widespread and deep-seated anti-Jewish prejudice um, in German society. And so I wanna spend a bit more time here and quickly trace this continuity of anti-Semitism because it had important implications for the Nazi period. So Nazi anti-Jewish ideology converged with widespread popular prejudices that were really embedded in European society, uh, including political, economic, and racial forms of anti-Semitism. Um, historically, this prejudice emerged out of the early church um, after the break between Christianity and Judaism. Early followers of Jesus uh, were Jews, but overall, most Jews did not embrace the belief that Jesus had been raised from the dead and was the Messiah. And this led to tensions, especially after 70 CE, when most of the New Testament was written. And after Christianity became established in the fourth century, many anti-Jewish laws were passed all across Europe. Um, there's, uh, we can see a lot of this um, sort of play out in the imagery of medieval art. And if, if you've ever been to Europe and visited different cathedrals, you might have seen these figures of ecclesia and synagogue, which are the personification. They're you know, images of women uh, personifying the church and the synagogue. And um, ecclesia is always standing you know, upright you know, with, um, with all sorts of symbolic um, things that she's holding and wearing and synagogue is beside her, always looking down, um, often blindfolded, um, and it, the, it's really uh, trying to evoke the, the idea of supersessionism, or this idea that um, God's previous covenant with the Jewish people was now superseded by Christianity, and that it was no longer valid. Um, we, we also, in the medieval period, and continuing further into the modern period, we have these persistent blood libels um, in many different parts of Europe. This is the rumor that accuses Jews of kidnapping and murdering Christian children in order to use their blood for religious rituals. The first one was in 1154, uh, William of Norwich, but it happened all over Europe, uh, persisting into the 19th, and in a few cases, even into the 20th centuries. Uh, I know we're moving quite quickly along. This could be a whole topic in and of itself, but I want to also mention um, Martin Luther, um, especially since we're talking about Germany here. And, uh, you know, Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, hugely important figure in the history of Protestantism, uh, also wrote this book called On the Jews and Their Lies in 1543. 
And this, in this book, um, you know, he calls for setting fire to synagogues and schools and unleashing violence against Jews. And so it marks not only a criticism theologically with Judaism, but, but also you know, is, is very, quite violent uh, uh, against, uh, against Jews that are you know, living uh, in, in the society at the time, their, their neighbors. And Luther's anti-Semitism had a direct connection to Nazi Germany because you know, Luther was really seen as a national hero, not just a Protestant hero, but you know, he translated the Bible into the vernacular and he did a, he did a, a lot and for, for Germany and German culture. And so when the Nazis came to power and learned of Luther's um, horrible anti-Semitism as well, they really liked it, obviously, and, and really um, played up uh, Martin, Martin Luther and, and that history. Um, you know, I know that in the 19th century, anti-Judaism took on new forms and became uh, racialized. Uh, and so we see Nazi anti-Semitism. I'm not suggesting that you know, what I've spoken about, medieval forms of anti-Judaism and Nazi anti-Semitism are the same. I'm not saying this at all. But certainly this legacy got folded um, as time went on. And the Nazis uh, really capitalized on these familiar images and tropes that would have just been um, instantly recognizable to Germans at the time. Uh, one example, again, I can show you, I have my slides printed out. If anyone is curious, I can show you the newspaper cover after um, that, I, that I often show people, but I can describe it as well. It's a Nazi newspaper called Der Sturmer, who was very um, sensationalist, extremely anti-Semitic, um, and on the cover, um, many, many years, around Easter time especially, was a time when they would uh, rely on Christian symbols uh, to further their anti-Semitic ideas uh, right on the cover. And so there's this one from Easter 1933, uh, and it has a, a, an image of Jesus on the cross. It says, the Jews nailed Christ onto the cross and thought he was dead. He is risen. They nailed Germany to the cross and thought it was dead, and it is risen more gloriously than ever before. And so we see how, at first, what it does is it repeats this um, accusation that the Jews killed Christ. It then accuses the, the Jews of killing Germany, and it inverts the figure of Jesus on the cross. Instead of a Jew, Jesus is now the personification of Germany, which is persecuted and suffers and rises from the dead. So we can think about how this would have been seen by ordinary Germans at the time, with you know, the suffering of, of the loss of World War I still very fresh in their minds. And we know that Hitler's, well, one of his central ideas was this idea that Germany had been stabbed in the back by the home front and by Jews, and that's why they had lost World War I. This is a very common thing that he said. And so these types of images, which really rely on you know, Christian theological ideas of atonement and the cross, and the, you know, all, all these things are just quickly encapsulated in one simple drawing and a caption to convey um, Nazi anti-Semitism. So the Nazis not only used familiar images to promote their anti-Semitism, but they also tried to appeal to Christians in the early years. Um, the Nazi party platform from 1920, so very early on, and, and the Nazi movement was very young, they released a party platform, and one of their points had to do with positive Christianity. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, you're not alone. They kind of just made it up. It was very vague about what positive Christianity meant. They said, we are for positive Christianity. 
So even though no one exactly, you know, everyone thought it was a little vague, it did give the sense to people that there was maybe room for Christians in the Nazi party. Uh, and many Germans read it as a sign of affirmation uh, of Christianity. And Hitler you know, went on like this. In fact, after becoming chancellor in 1933, his very first radio address, he mentioned Christians. He said, the national government will maintain and defend the foundations on which the power of our nation rests. It will offer strong protection to Christianity on the basis of our collective morality. So at this time, Hitler was very concerned about public opinion, both domestically and internationally, and he was eager to consolidate power. And so he was savvy enough to know that it would not be a good idea to alienate the churches at that time. So if we look back to the side of, of the churches and church leaders, Protestant and Catholic, we can see a range of responses to the, to the Nazis and to Hitler. Um, being in power in the government. In the Protestant church, a bitter church struggle unfolded. There was really an ongoing debate and struggle for control of the German Protestant church between those who sought to create a Nazified church uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, those who opposed it, and then probably the majority of people in the middle who were just trying to remain neutral in this conflict. Um, you may be familiar with this, with the Confessing Church and the German Christian movement, sometimes called the church struggle um, overall, or the Kirchenkampf. So the German Christians um, were the ones who were trying to fuse Christianity and National Socialism. They began even before the Nazis came to power in the early 30s, and their vision was for a racially pure church. They began to attack so-called Jewish influences on Christianity. What this meant in practical terms, they tried to bar non-Aryans from the pulpit and the pew. They rejected the canonicity of the Old Testament. They just <laughs> we'll just get rid of the whole, whole Old Testament. They denied the Jewish ancestry of Jesus. And they even tried to remove certain words like Hosanna and Hallelujah that they thought sounded too Jewish. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it was uh, theologically extreme, to be certain. Um, so, and, and again, I, I have some images that I can show you um, after, but there's a, a children's book, of all things, if you can imagine, um, that really has a good image that encapsulates these ideas. It's an image of uh, a Jewish couple just uh, leaving a church uh, after a service, and they, you know, they're drawn with very um, stereotypical um, Jewish features, so it's clear immediately that they're supposed to be Jews. And the caption reads um, that, I didn't write it down exactly, that, that baptism didn't make them into non-Jews. That's what it was. Um, so this idea, that really goes against Christian teachings of, of what baptism really is, that baptism did not make a Jew into a German, and it did not make a Jew into a Christian. And this was, this was their idea. So the Christ German Christian movement was supported uh, by the Nazi party in the early years. At its height in 1933, so really this is the first year of the Nazi regime. So they really peaked early and then, and then declined. But at their height, approximately a third of Protestant clergy might have joined. It's impossible uh, for us to have accurate figures of how normal lay people um, participated. Uh, we only have you know, approximations for clergy. But 
it's important to recognize that this movement came from within the church. This was not imposed on the church by the Nazi party. Um, at a large German Christian rally in November 1933, um, they called for the removal of so-called non-Aryans from posts as clergy and officials in church government. Now, this, in practical terms, this would have affected only a very small number of people, so clergy who had converted from Judaism to Christianity. But still, the idea in principle um, really um, bothered a, a lot of other people. And so a group of pastors, including Martin Niemöller, who I uh, spoke about at the beginning, they formed Pastors Emergency League, and they pledged to protest all infringements on confessional freedom by the state and explicitly opposed removing these pastors who had converted from Christianity, from, from Judaism to Christianity. And so over the next several months, um, these uh, opposition, um, the different people opposed to the German Christians came together and formed the Confessing Church. It strongly condemned this Nazified theology as false doctrine, um, and they opposed the Nazi efforts to incorporate church activities with Nazi life. But the, it's important to, to understand that the Confessing Church limited its protests to maintaining the autonomy and the theological integrity of the Protestant churches. They weren't protesting the legitimacy of the Nazi state itself. And so we, we can't really think of it as a resistance movement. Um, in fact, it's been called a loyal opposition, which I think is, is more accurate. And you know, many in the confessing church were also nationalistic, and some, in fact, were also anti-Semitic. Uh, as I said, the German Christians' success was short-lived, um, you know, partly because they were theologically just too extreme, as I can see from, from your reactions um, to some of their ideas. Um, and so, you know, the, this, this church struggle, I guess, was a success in, in partly for the confessing church because the churches did remain independent, uh, unlike many other parts of German society throughout the Nazi years. And I have maybe just a few minutes remaining because I should say something about the Catholic church as well. Uh, I know that I've spoken a lot about the Protestants so far. Um, Definitely more Protestants voted for the Nazis than Catholics because, the, as I mentioned earlier, the Catholics still had their own political party, the Catholic Center Party. Um, so if we look, you know, that's a question that comes up a lot. Well, who voted for the Nazis, you know, in those last elections, the last free elections? Um, but Hitler was a baptized Catholic. He was from Austria, right? And he remained in the Catholic Church for his entire life. He was not excommunicated. Um, but German Catholicism came into conflict with the Nazi movement from the beginning. Uh, German Catholic bishops spoke out in the 1920s against Hitler's glorification of race and blood, this language that, that, that they were used. But they rarely said anything specific about anti-Semitism. It was, it was more um, general. Um, after Hitler became chancellor, the the church hierarchy was kind of in a tricky situation because they had you know, been quite vocally uh, opposed to the Nazi party and they had to quickly you know, figure out what to do. They too had a long history of respecting government authority. And very quickly Hitler made efforts to appease Catholics and made all sorts of promises, promised to keep you know, Catholic religious education in schools. 
And so the Catholic uh, bishops lifted their ban on National Socialism. So before, there had been a lot of questions by local priests like, um, am I allowed to administer the sacraments to someone who shows up in a Nazi uniform? Can we display the Nazi flag? What about a funeral? Uh, and so all of these sorts of bans were lifted and, and the Catholic Church you know, proceeded to um, just you know, proceed as usual um, under this new regime. Uh, and we can see how this combination of, of an underlying anti-Semitism and a desire to get along with the government and to protect the rights of Catholics, these, these really affected how the German Catholic leadership responded to the increasing persecution of Jews. I have one example I'd like to share from a cardinal, Cardinal Bertram, um, and how he responded to the April 1st, 1933 boycott, which uh, boycott of Jewish-owned businesses, which is planned by the Nazis, uh, where everyone was supposed to you know, avoid going to uh, if their dentist or butcher or department store was owned by a Jew, everyone was supposed to, to boycott those for a day. And some other church leaders wrote to Cardinal Bertram and, and, and asked for advice uh, about what, what to do, and they wanted him to intervene and, um, and petition the government to stop this boycott on the basis that it was you know, unjust. And he responded that this was not his place to, to intervene in this way. He said... This is a matter of economics. It has nothing to do with the church's work. He also said it might send the wrong message about the place of the church. And he also said, and I, this is a direct quote um, toward the end of this memo, he says, one might mention in passing that the press, which is overwhelmingly in Jewish hands, has remained consistently silent about the persecution of Catholics in various countries. So here we see him you know, repeating this you know, anti-Jewish stereotype that the Jews controlled the media, uh, and, and then saying that you know, they haven't responded to the persecution of Catholics. Um, and I think these, these two things, you know, the anti-Semitism plus the concern for Catholics really sums up the Catholic churches, um, the way that they proceeded over the next few years. Um, that same summer, in, in summer of 1933, uh, the Reichskonkordat, which is a treaty negotiation, was signed between the Holy See and the German Reich, and this guaranteed the rights of Catholics in Germany. And so many questions remain uh, about the Pope and the Vatican, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, which is why scholars are so excited about the newly opened Vatican archives for the period of, of Pius XII. By way of conclusion, I'm probably at time. Okay, um, so I just want to mention that, that there are cases of Christians who engaged in resistance, rescue, and assistance during these years, but these activities were usually undertaken under one's personal initiative, not from, um, from leadership or the direction or encouragement from their, their pastors. A few individuals like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and a few small networks like the German Quakers did resist Nazi policies, and they were able to see very clearly what other people could only see in hindsight much later on. But it's important, I mean, this is a very important topic too, and I, you know, I could go on for a long time about resistance uh, from different um, small um, examples, but it's important, I think, not to offer up these individual cases as a way to try to counterbalance this broader narrative that I've presented today. But certainly this history raises complex ethical questions about how people of faith 
and Christian churches relate to their governments, um, when religious bodies should speak out about injustice, or let people act according to their own individual conscience. Questions about the role of clergy in shaping people's responses to political developments in a deeply polarized society, perhaps something that we can all uh, relate to a bit even today. So thank you, I'll stop there. That's a really good question, and I think it, it was definitely a process. And that boycott that I mentioned in April 33, so he came, Nazis came to power in January, they quickly made a lot of changes. April 1st was this first boycott, and it was actually a flop, because people just weren't, like the general public weren't quite with him yet. Um, they said, well, I have a dentist appointment that day, and my dentist is Jewish, so I'm not going to cancel. Like, they just, they, the hatred, um, the anti-Semitism was not quite that vicious yet. And so the Nazis pulled back. And Hitler was always sort of judging and reading the room. And, and so it unfolded gradually. I mean, it ramped up quickly. We see by 1935, the Nuremberg, the, the, the Nuremberg laws come into effect. Um, 38, Kristallnacht, certainly the war and things ramp up. So it, it was a process and, and Hitler had to, you know, bring people al along in, in the process of anti-Semitism. Yeah. Rebecca, I know it's a complicated topic and you may not have done, you know, thorough research yourself, but what's your view, if you have one, on the role of Pope Pius XII? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it, it is, I mean, Clearly, the, Pope Pius XII was a very different individual human being than his predecessor, Pope Pius XI. And, you know, Pius XI died right in 1939. Maybe things would have been different. You know, popes, popes are human beings as well with different backgrounds and, uh, and orientations to their work. I think Pius XII, um, he definitely knew what was going on, and he definitely didn't you know make public statements to what extent that really changed the course of the war I, I I'm not sure and I don't mean to pivot away from your question but person my personal opinion is that there's been a lot of focus on Pius XII as an individual and I think what we're going to find in the Vatican archives and really what's what's more important for understanding the Catholic Church the Vatican and the Catholic Church is not just what Pius XII did, but what so many others, you know, all the Vatican officials, all the bishops and cardinals in so many countries, in Romania, in Poland, you know, like even in America, um, how, how Catholics responded. And so part of those archives are, you know, diplomatic correspondence between the Vatican and every country in which Catholics live. I, so I just think it's, it's much more, it's much broader than just Pius XII himself. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. What was happening in the United States at this time? Um, the U.S. government was kind of stiff-arming the refugee issue mm -hmm. for quite a while. Mm -hmm. uh, I assume the Jewish community in the United States was familiar with what was happening on and assisting people like Einstein to come on over. Yeah. What about the uh, American uh, Protestant uh, Christian community? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. We have a, a temporary exhibit at the museum right now on Americans and the Holocaust. It's a really excellent exhibit just created a few years ago. So if you have a chance, I encourage you to go look at it. And it touches a little bit on, on Christian leaders, but, but not, not a ton. Um, so yes, among Jewish communities, there certainly were rallies and protests and petitions um, from the beginning. Christian, Christian leaders in the US tended to see well, they were focused on what they understood as Christian persecution. Of the, the, they really saw the Christian churches in Germany as being potentially um, persecuted or, or limited. And, and they also recognized that there was Jewish persecution happening, but they sort of viewed it through this lens of religious persecution, the same as, as the, how the Christian churches were being persecuted. So I think they, they didn't quite see it as something distinct that was happening to the Jews and that the Nazis really viewed it as a racial matter. Um, and so I think they're, they, they weren't quite seeing it clearly, but everyone was following what was happening in Germany, especially among the churches um, over here, this church struggle that I described. Um, church leaders were very uh, much involved. Um, there were some cases of of uh, Christian leaders here addressing homegrown anti-Semitism, expressions of anti-Semitism here um, at, at home. And so, I mean, I, I, there, there are a few examples of this in the, in the exhibition. One, one small example, there was a minister in Connecticut, I think he was a Congregationalist minister, and there, were, there was a German-American Bund, which was like a, an American Nazi organization. They were trying to set up summer camps and indoctrinate youth here in the US. And this um, minister, they, they were trying to set up one in his town in Connecticut, and he effectively blocked the creation of this summer camp by changing the zoning laws in his town. And so he's, he's featured in the exhibit. So yeah, that's, that's a really interesting story. <laughs> yes? Uh, yeah, um, if I'm, I'm interested in the, the Holocaust Museum's uh, more contemporary uh, you know, mm -hmm. lessons of work in, in our world. Um, and I have read that in terms of the origins of the U.S. Holocaust Museum here in Washington, that it was really uh, Stuart Eisenstadt's recommendation to President Carter. In, when he, Stuart Eisenstadt had been tasked with uh, the 1980 election, mm -hmm. gallop towards Jimmy Carter, um, to, to try to assuage some hurt feelings in the American Jewish community. When uh, Carter had said that uh, Palestinians also have rights and need to be attended to, so raising, in other words, Israel-Palestine issue. Mm -hmm. And this caused a lot of pushback among uh, Jewish Democrats and others, I guess, I don't know, but anyway, so he said, find out what to do. How can I, you know, explain that I have you know, nothing but positive feelings and support for the Jewish community. And Eisenstein came back, 
Have you heard any of this before? Some yeah. of it, yeah. I yeah. don't want to be, yeah. take it over. But anyway, yeah. I just had said, like, yeah. well, really, the big, the big consensus is the found a uh, federally supported Holocaust Museum. Mm -hmm. So the very inception was, was tied with a very prominent, uh, you know, global issue and mm -hmm. uh, political issue uh, in terms of the Middle Want to speak about that? Sure, just a little bit, just to say that it's very important to our museum's identity now that we not be seen as a Jewish museum. And over 90% of our visitors are not Jewish. Many of us who are employed there are not Jewish. And I think that you know this really is supposed to be a museum for all, all Americans and, and international audiences as well. Um, so I'd say that that's how we pitch it today. I understand the particular political dynamics that were at work back in the 1980s. But I think even, even back then, um, after that commission, as they were deciding, okay, we're going to have a Holocaust memorial, what will it actually look like here on the mall? It was At the beginning, it wasn't even a given that it would be a museum. It could have been some other kind of memorial, but they did decide to do a museum. And it was really Elie Wiesel who shaped the vision for what this was. Elie Wiesel, I mean, you can watch the recording of this program that we had to honor him a few weeks ago up at the National Cathedral. And uh, you know we know he, he was he was a Zionist himself, but he had a real vision to you know as someone who had survived the Holocaust to address contemporary manifestations of hatred and mass killing and genocide around the world. He, this was always part of his vision, and so that's why the museum also from the beginning had this uh, work that centered on contemporary genocide prevention which continues to this day. Um, so, I mean, the, the whole Israel-Palestine thing, I probably don't want to get into, but, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah? Super, I'm uh, sorry, we have to stop. Yeah. Everyone, please join oh. me in thanking Rebecca.